Good morning, everyone. Welcome to the Passages of Summer edition of the 7am Novelist. I'm Michelle Hoover, your host. Today, we're really lucky to have Yale Goldstein Love with a bonus episode, and she's going to share the first pages of her latest novel, The Possibilities, which releases in July. Good morning, Yale. Thank you so much for being on the show. Good morning. Thank you so much for having me. Yael Goldstein Love is the author of the novels The Passion of Tuska, Tasha Darsky, described as, quote, showing signs of brooding genius, unquote, by the New York Times. I think that's the sort of thing that you can just put on your wall and feel satisfied. <laughs> I think that's great. She's also the author, as we know, of The Possibilities, which releases in July. She practices psychotherapy with a particular interest in, in the transition to parenthood and is working toward her doctorate in clinical psychology. Her dissertation research focuses on how mothers experience their anxiety from the, for the unknown futures of their children. And the reason why I'm including this part of her bio, um, biography is because it really feeds into what her novel's about and what she's able to do with her novel. Uh, Yale is also a graduate of Harvard University and currently attends the Wright Institute. She lives with her six-year-old son and a very patient cat in Berkeley, California. All right, so I'm going to have Yale give a quick summary of the book. Now, by the way, folks, Kirkus Reviews called this book part thriller, part psychology, part quantum phoenix, all fun. I think that's a pretty damn review. <laughs> um, so, I mean, I just, you're, you're genre crossing, you're doing a lot with this book. So what, what is this book about? Can you give us kind of a, an overview so we understand these first pages? Yeah, absolutely. I, but I love that sentence too. I love it. <laughs> I was like, yes, perfect. Thank you. I, that's all, like, so hard to describe that book. So the possibilities, um, it's really, it's my attempt to reimagine new motherhood as a hero quest. So my main character, Hannah, um, she almost loses her child. Her child almost dies during birth. And then she just can't shake the feeling that his death came too close to happening. And it's almost like there's this shadow world lurking beside her own. And then when he's eight months old, he actually disappears from her crib, his, from his crib. Um, and people start forgetting him one by one. So like the cops who took the kidnap call, his own dad. Um, and then it's up to her to find him and bring him home, save him, which is complicated because it involves going into other possible worlds. Wow, that's incredible. You know, it reminds me from the very first pages, it was reminding me a little bit of Sandra Newman's The, the Heavens. Do you Ooh, know that? I have, no, so, and now I need to read it. It's a love story, but one member of the love story keeps disappearing into another time and another world. And every time she returns to the present world, things are missing. Um, so it has a different and more time travel, but 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 still the, the different possibilities of a life and and one person remembering life being one way and other people remembering life being another way. Um, so. Okay, let's hear, I'm gonna have her read the first chapter and then read just the first few lines of the second chapter so you can hear the transition um, because she does something interesting here. Okay, yeah, go ahead. All right. That was when the world split. When she was open on the table, paralyzed from the waist down. When they held her child up for, you, for her to say, you, she thought, but the sight of him, twisted rigid in a howl that never came, cut off the thought. Then he was gone. Someone had taken him. Instead of his cry, there was the tinny hospital PA paging one neonatal team and then another. Instead of his cry, 
the voices of competent, confident people creeping toward alarm. A doctor's narrow head was bent in concentration, sewing her back into a body. What's happening, she asked. They're trying, Adam said from somewhere behind. Then he was just above and kissed her forehead. His lips felt dry and chapped. The room was small, too small for all these people. She didn't know the situation, but understood that it was dire. Someone had held her child up and taken him away, and he hadn't made a sound yet, and the room kept filling with more people. It's cold in here, she said. They need to wrap him. It's warm, Hannibal, said Adam's voice, but not from near her ear where she expected. They've got him warm, don't worry. They're doing everything correctly. He must have been straining to see, must have been craning. She could hear it in his voice. It was happening near the door, she was almost certain, somewhere past her feet, whatever they were trying. And the door was letting in a draft. She felt it blowing over her. She didn't try to see. She wouldn't have been able to. Her view partially blocked by the paper draping meant to shield her from an eyeful of her insides. But also, seeing had never been a part of what, she, what they shared, she and this child. In their nine months together, she had only ever seen him for an instant. Tiny body, twisted rigid in a silent howl, eyes not yet open. That was seconds ago, or minutes or hours. And every second without oxygen killed more of him. The tiny brain that had been growing all along inside her, the one she somehow felt she knew, so much so that the unfamiliar look of him surprised her. The situation seemed to her quite obviously, quite awesomely a bad one, but also somehow muted in the way that time mutes even the worst pain. It felt to her this had been going on for longer than the life she'd lived until now. In the corner of her vision, something moved. She, she tilted up her chin and caught a blur as it moved past her, held cradled in a nurse's arms. The blue smudged lips, the way one tiny arm trailed as a doll's would, the clipped efficient sorrow in the way the nurse grabbed at the arm and tucked it in, the clipped efficient sorrow of the quiet then de that descended. Then she was looking at the obstetrician's narrow head still bent behind the curtain, the hair so glossy black it cast its own strange dulled reflection on the overhead fluorescence. Is he okay, she asked, is he going to be okay? There was no answer. Eight months later, I stood on the top level of an open parking structure, watching fog roll in from the Oakland Hills and longing for a cigarette. Jack was regarding me through heavy eyes. He looked like he could sleep. I smiled at him and then unable to resist, though I knew it would perk him up and make a car seat nap less likely, I bent and nuzzled the top of his small head. The silky brown waves that tightened into ringlets near the base of his neck smelled of absurdly expensive baby shampoo mixed with a musk like a cat's just licked fur. The smell soothed my nerve endings like nicotine. Should I stop there? Yeah, wonderful. I think that's great. I think that's going to tantalize enough people. So again, that, that first chapter, there's a timestamp under the first chapter eight months earlier. And then the chapter two happens when we go into the first person eight months later, I stood on the top level. Now, and something really interesting happens there because in chapter two, we're, we think he's not okay. There's no answer. We're worried. We worry that, you know, they've taken him away. We're worried that he didn't survive the birth or something has gone wrong. And yet in the third paragraph of the second chapter, I smiled at him and then unable to resist, though I knew it would perk him up and make the car seat nap less likely, I bent and nuzzled his small head. And we think, oh, 
it's okay. Oh, I didn't have anything to worry about. It's almost like you do this little trick, like, oh, what did I have to worry about? You know, and there's the space between them. And we're like, oh, this was all for nothing. And yet that's, that space is the whole book because that's what you begin to explore. Um, so talk to us about these first pages. Did you always have these first pages in mind when you when you started the book? I did not. I did not. I actually, initially I started just where I start with the first person. We're like, the kid's fine. Um, you know, and so like, you know, you're just like with this mom, she's with her kid. And then um, this is the day where he starts, he first disappears. Um, but something wasn't working. You know, it's like I was trying first. I just wanted to go from like, like just that moment of like him disappearing, how terrifying it was. But I somehow psychologically, like I couldn't get you to the right mindset where she, because so much of the book, even though it's this sci-fi plot, it's about the psychology of, of that anxiety of motherhood, of, of early motherhood, motherhood, just like how anxious you feel. And I realized that without the, the first chapter, without sort of going through the birth with her, so you feel um, how tentative his existence here feels, so that you sort of go through that experience, that I couldn't, it wasn't sort of landing in the right way. It was feeling too much like just pure thriller instead of sort of the psychological aspect. And so it was like many times of trying to get that that other chapter right, the sort of first person where everything's lighter and it's moving and it's moving. Um, and I was like, oh, no, 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 because this is not the right place to start. Like we need, the reader needs to go through this birth experience in the same way that Hannah goes through the birth experience. And then it has, everything has a different resonance. Yeah. And why'd you choose to do that in the third person? Yeah, I mean that too was not it was not a quick decision. I wrote that first. I was like, well, look, the whole thing's in the the whole thing is in the first person. So I'm gonna write this in the first person. And it just it was not working, that opening chapter. I was like, I just couldn't get it right. And I mean that first chapter, I I am not a person who writes um autobiographically normally. That is my birth. That first opening is is my birth, and that is the experience of of what it was like. And I couldn't, I realized it's not. I wasn't able to capture in the first person where it's like, I know I am me, I know where I am. I couldn't capture the confusion, the utter confusion of what that period is. And I was like, I didn't experience that in the first person. I experienced that, like, I don't even, I'm not even here. I don't know where I am in this scene. And so in order to sort of get that feeling of utter disorientation and dislocation, that I think was part is part of what makes that moment so terrifying. I needed it to be in the third person, um, even though there was this sort of worry of like, okay, I'm going to move from the third person to the first person, and are people going to know this is the same person? And so that's why I put her name um, early on, so that like in both times you see this is the same person. But um, yeah, it was like the only way. I actually tried to make it work in the first person many, many times. I was like, there's just no way. It just doesn't. It has to go from the third to the first. It's the only possibility. And this is the only time you go into third in the book? It's the only time in the whole book is just this, this first chapter. Yeah. Well, it's, it's an interesting moment because it's kind of this division from self. And I think, okay, I've not given birth, but, the, but, I've, but I've heard that women do feel they kind of turn into animals or machines, that they're, it's very separate from themselves. All the strangest stuff is going on. Um, and, I don't, and it also introduces a mystery. What I think is interesting here is we kind of, we basically know birth scenes. Um, you know, there's some of the things that are oftentimes overlooked in fiction, like a lot of basic courtship stuff, a lot, weddings, funerals, birthdays, this sort of thing. But like, okay, those are ordinary things that everyone at least knows about somewhat. And you can you usually don't need to near um, put 
them into the narrative. Um, so what you can do is borrow from what we know and then twist it in a wonderful way <laughs> that unnerves us. <laughs> so greatly, but then it's also borrowed from your experience. And I think that's why you also get the emotions so right here. Because um, this could be highly, highly melodramatic and, and over the top. Yeah. But you're saying that this, this was your experience and emotionally, how, how was it to write down your experience here? Was it hard to get the emotion right? Or did it feel, did it just come? Um, you know, it, it, that's a good question. I'm trying to remember. I mean, I think it was hard. What you were saying about sort of like it could be melodramatic. I think when I first started to write it, I was writing it not from my experience. And so not with the um, the sort of muted confusion, first and foremost. And it was getting too melodramatic. And then I was realizing, no, you know what? That's remember what like your memory of it is is this muted confusion. And I think that's how you lived it. And so write it with that as sort of the first and foremost um, emotion. And then once I did that and sort of went into like, okay, write down everything you remember about it, um, then it came quite easily. But it was really, it was about knowing what is that, you know, that it's not the fear that's the first emotion. That's sort of the the um, dominant emotion. It's it's the confusion and disorientation. Um, and then, and, and, and like you said, the sort of like the feeling of, you know, it's like, a sort of divorceness from yourself, a dissociation from yourself and from the scene. Yeah, and, and a, a melodramatic treatment would be kind of escalating her into screaming, you know, where's my baby and crying and, and all sorts of stuff, which, which, which she's too confused for that. Yes. Um, she's, too, she's too distanced for that. And yet, and, 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 it, and we're not told that she's afraid, but it enters the sentences. So, um, I mean, first off, we get that the Adam is there. He's he's whispering to her from somewhere behind, um, and then he whispers to her again, and he's he's not where she expected. So that sense of disorientation, that sense of misplacement, that sense that things are moving and that she doesn't know what's going on. Also, the fact that she insists that it's cold, and everyone else insists that it's warm. So a different sense of reality which yeah. sounds like it's something you're going to continue throughout the book. Yes. Um, and then the disappearance of her son, because um, uh, they take him away from her very, very quickly. And that um, foreshadows what happens in the book. Yes. Um, so in the sentences we get, he must have been straining to see, must have been craning. She could hear it in his voice. So that kind of repetition. And it's also a, a comma splice. So kind of running it together. And there's other repetitions here happening near the door. She was on somewhere past her feet, whatever trying. Door was letting in the draft. She felt blowing over her. So, so somewhat simple sentence constructions, but that repetition of boom, 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 I, I think does well try to see she wouldn't have been able to her view partially blocked by the um, paper draping meant to shield her from an uh, from an eye um i love this line but also seeing had never been a part of what they shared she and this child so you're playing with um a kind of almost riffing sometimes stuttering because sometimes tannic sentence structure that i think just gets it across so so well um, oh, thank you. And is the writer really trusting themselves? How many times did you have to revise to really get it 
to a way that you felt comfortable with? You know, this uh, this um, particular section, once I sort of realized how to write it, uh, you know, to get in the sort of um, the distance from, from her own experience, it came out really, really quickly. And then it was a matter of pairing away. So it's like I put in a lot of other, you know, observations that are sort of along the same lines. And then it was a matter of like, okay, what are the most important? Like, you know, how do I, how do I pare this down to its absolute essentials? Because this needs to be, um, it needs to be quick. We need to sort of be in there and then we need to be out of there. Um, and so that was, I would say like, I mean, there were, there was a, there were, there were quite a number of drafts of just sort of like, you know, thinking I've gotten it down to the path and then be like, nope, there's more that can be stripped away. Nope. There's more that can be stripped away. Nope. There's more that can be stripped away. Um, and that was a lot of the work of it in the, in most of the stages of revising that. Because every time you look at it, you're like, yeah, no, that's extra. That's extra. That's extra. Yeah. That's um, extra. Yeah. And then in working with your agent and editor, how did they respond to these, this, this beginning? They they both really liked this beginning. I mean, I think by the time I had sent it to them, this beginning was in place. Um, some of the stripping away was ha happened with my editor. Um, and in fact, like a few of things, it was like some of my favorite lines and she'd be like, this can, and I'm like, what? No, everything hinges on that line. And then, you know, I'd like wait a day and be like, oh, she's right. That line can go. <laughs> you don't need that line. But so she, so she really helped, my editor really helped with the stripping down to like the absolute essentials. And I think it was so important with this because, because like, because it was so drawn from my experience, there were these certain lines that seemed to have so much resonance for me because they had psychological resonance for me. And I had to sort of have someone else say like, no, actually, like as a reader, that doesn't add that much. Um, and I could take that out. Yeah. And also the lines, the clipped efficient sorrow in the way that the nurse grabbed at the arm and tucked it in, which is unnerving image in and of itself. And yet like, you let it just sit. And then that, that strange description of, you know, anytime we use modifiers, hoping that the modifier adds something or even um, work seems to work against the word that it modifies. Efficient sorrow together has so, so much energy. And then you repeat it, the clipped efficient sorrow of the quiet that descended um, is, is the perfect way to use a modifier, to add tension and interest to the language um, instead of using a modifier that, that the word sorrow already contains. Um, and I, that just works so well. So talk about, you're really interested in the psychology of this and you have studied psychology um, and you have also, you, you said this was your birth. So how did that feed into all of that feed into the beginning and how you moved to the rest of, of the novel? Yeah, I mean, so I, it's interesting. So my writing the book, um, preceded my sort of clinical interest in the transition to motherhood. I mean, all of it, all of the interest in, in the psychology of motherhood and birth comes from my own experience of just like, this was a bad birth. <laughs> um, and I had a strange postpartum experience as a result. And writing the book was so much my trying to make sense of my experience and make meaning of my experience. Um, and, um, and so I think it was, so much, it, it was a different writing experience for me than I think anything else I've written. We're often, you know, I'm writing a book and, and first and foremost, it, I'm thinking like, how do I, I'm thinking about the finished product of like, how do I make this into the best read? How do I make this? And of course I was doing that with this book too. I mean, you're always doing that with a novel, but so much of my, um, 
of my motivation here and so much of what I was actively thinking about when I was working on the page was how do I um, make sense of the experience I actually had? And I think that that really changed how I wrote it. It changed sort of like scene by scene, the decisions I was making, it changed sentence by sentence, the decisions I was making. Um, and, you know, and, and it also led into my, my interest in this psychologically. And then it was in later drafts. I mean, so I think in the first draft, everything was like my own. Okay, like how do I capture my own experience? How do I make meaning of this while making it a really good book as well? Um, and then it was in later drafts that I started to layer in my psychological, you know, my uh, my other career as a psychologist, as a as a um, psychotherapist and and a doctoral student in clinical psychology, and sort of layering in some of that stuff. Um, yeah, I don't know if that answered your question, honestly. <laughs> so, so no, no. From What's then, what's sort of example of something that you layered in from your psychotherapy um, practice can you give us? Because that intrigues yeah. me. Yeah, I mean, actually there's quite a bit. I mean, um, first of all, so her, her, her therapist is one of the characters in the book. She doesn't appear that many times, but, um, but there's sort of an important relationship. And so you see her in therapy. Um, so just, I mean, that just sort of like the, her therapist, I have to say, it's funny because her therapist, the things that her therapist says are quite different than what I would say to a patient coming to me in that same situation. But I had a sense of like what this character as a therapist might say. I think I had a better sense of like, you know, what a therapist, this therapist would say than if I hadn't been um, doing this myself. Um, but then also just like, I think, you know, it's like when you have a really intense experience, like going from not a mother to a mother or almost losing your child in childbirth, you have no idea sort of what is just your own and what is sort of a more universal experience. Um, and because I've worked with a lot of parents, a lot of people who have gone through this, and because I, um, I did my dissertation on maternal anxiety, I've been immersed in research on this, I've been talking to participants, I had much more of a sense of like, how much of this is just my own experience and how much of this is something that really is like at the heart of what it is to go through this or, or for a lot of people to go through this. And that really helped me um, write the book and especially the sort of the, the sci-fi metaphor of the book in a way that I think was much more universalizable, if that makes any sense. Like just yeah. sort of like the, you know, like what the profound strangeness, honestly, of the experience of like going from just like this simple thing of a person in the world, which you don't realize what a simple and beautiful thing that is <laughs> until you're not just that. And and yeah, there was something I think I think I was able to write about it in, in a very different way, having like immersed in so many people's ex of experiences of it, not just my own. And I like hearing that your therapist had a, a different person personality than you because I do in my teaching I get a lot of books um, in which authors use therapists and the therapist is basically just a mirror to the character and isn't a person in and of themselves and I'm like well this person could just be sitting in alone in a room thinking these things <laughs> um, I mean really are you avoiding, and I say this to students, are you avoiding actual conflict by just allowing them to talk through these problems with their husband, with their therapist, instead of actually being in with the husband? I mean, honestly, my favorite therapist is Atessa Musveg, and I always mispronounce her last name, so apologies, Atessa Musveg's um, My Year of Rest and Relaxation. And that therapist is, is such an awful therapist because she's giving her every cocktail drug possible. <laughs> And is herself possibly mentally ill. Um, 
Yeah, but she's still my favorite therapist. Um, did you correct me though? Am I wrong in thinking about therapists in fiction that way? Because I sometimes when I see them, I'm like, uh oh, here we have another mirror and another avoidance and another. What do you think? Oh, I think that is so accurate. I mean, and I think, I mean, maybe this, I, I don't want to get in trouble by saying this, but I think in a way it also mirrors something that often goes wrong in therapy. <laughs> like, I think there are a lot of therapists who just sort of like mirror and validate and tell you what you want to hear. And, uh, but I think that, but I think there also is sort of like, a, like you're saying, it's like a, it can be a crutch in writing of like, here, the therapist will say these things. And I think like, um, I mean, I think, I'm trying, I'm like, I don't want to say something too controversial here, but I mean, I do think, I mean, I will say that my therapist in the book, the, the therapist character in the book is not saying what the character wants to hear. And is sort of saying quite, quite not what the character wants to hear. Um, and sort of interesting relational things are happening with that. I think that maybe that's, you know, that's the thing that I think is usually missing um, from scenes with therapists in, in books is like, a good therapy is first and foremost an interesting and an utterly unusual relationship. It has nothing in common with most relationships. Um, and if you're not capturing that, um, and if you're not using that as part of the scene, then there's really no reason for this to be a scene with your therapist. Right, right. Excellent. I, yeah, that, that's a great way to think about it, that it has to be its own uh, relationship. Um, and also with the therapist having their own intentions, which might not be the character's intentions. I mean, the therapist yes. might also be having a really bad day. <laughs> um, I think I had an appointment once with a therapist and she just asked me, how does that help you? And she said it in such a kind of angry way. And I was like, oh, I really pissed. I'm sorry. <laughs> it was the first time she got through to me. I think I needed that sort of punishment or something. I don't know what's wrong with me, but anyway. Ooh. Hey everyone, now that you know a little something too much about me, we're going to have to finish and get you all back to your writing desk. So whether or not you're writing a therapist scene or not, um, I hope you get some good writing done today. You can find our full schedule on our Substack page at 7amnovelist.substack.com. You can subscribe there for updates and you can find our full range of podcast episodes on that page including episodes from our past two writing challenges, as well as on any of your favorite podcast platforms. And if you like what we're doing, please follow, rate, and review our podcast so that we look really fabulous and that other listeners can find us. So yeah, one last thing. What advice would you give to authors about their own first pages? You know, I think... Um, Take this with a grain of salt, <laughs> but I will say, um, as, as I would take any any advice with a grain of salt, but um, I think I have found for myself, when I am trying to justify that my first pages work and sort of explain to myself why this is the right place to begin, it's not the right place to begin. That when you finally have the right place to begin, justification falls away. You just know this is the right place. I feel like I've gone through so many things where I'm like, yes, here's why this is right. And I keep telling myself and I can tell such a good story about why this is the right place. It's never the right place. Right. It's never the right place until you feel it in your gut. That's interesting. Yeah, because you're basically defending it to yourself and you shouldn't have to defend it. It should just be right. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> That is very good. I think people can run with that one. Okay, everyone, stop defending you yourself and just be like, that's so easy. Yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> no, I really do. I like that. I like that you feel that, yeah. 
Okay, I'm going to let you go, Yale, but thank you so much for being with us and thank you so much for helping our writers out. Thank you.